Hello and welcome to Future Pod. I'm Rebecca Meyett. The Futures and Foresight community comprises a remarkable and diverse group of individuals who span academic, commercial and social interests. At FuturePod, we seek to honour and to learn from the wisdom of those who have established and developed our field, to connect and support the practice of those who work in this space, and most importantly, to give pathways and inspiration to those who wish to join us in creating humane and better futures for ourselves and those who come after us. Today, our guest is Dr. Joseph Voros. Joe has been a professional futurist for two decades after an earlier PhD in theoretical physics, followed by some time working in internet-related companies, including a stint at the legendary Netscape Communications Corporation of Silicon Valley in the 1990s. For many years, Joe has used the multidisciplinary frameworks of cosmic evolution, astrobiology, and big history to frame and explore broad questions about the longer-term futures of global civilization and humankind. Joe serves on the editorial boards of several journals and is a founding member and former board member of the International Big History Association. He is also a member of the Great Transition Initiative and is a co-founder and co-host of the Future Shift program. Welcome to FuturePod, Joe. Thank you. Good to be here. Now, Joe, where did, where did it all begin for you in terms of your introduction to foresight or thinking about um, the futures field? Well, the futures field, that's, that's more recent, but the interest in the future goes back. I was thinking about this the other day. It goes back to the moon landing. I was, I'm just old enough to remember it. And I was fascinated by watching all these images. And I was asking annoying questions of my parents, of course. And I was like five. So, they, of course, they got me a book what the moon astronauts do. And I started to read that and I kept asking questions. So they, they you know, bought me encyclopedias and told me to read those. And so fairly soon I got interested in the future as a place that was happening now because, you know, that wow, the moon. And because people were saying, well, you've never been there before. This is amazing. This is, you know, and so I got turned on to the idea of thinking about the future early on, uh, but through science and how science could do groovy stuff. Um, so I ended up, starting to read science fiction, of course, the usual suspects, Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke and um, John Wyndham. Uh, My favourite science fiction writer was probably John Varley, sort of later in the 80s. Um, He wrote some astonishing stuff. So I ended up being interested in science and was reading lots of science and reading science fiction. But of course, it spoils TV for you because I remember I grew up with Lost in Space. Of course, we all wanted to be Will Robinson, uh, all the, the boys. But there was some terrible science in that show. So it was already explored. So I came to realise that you needed imagination, but you also needed discipline. So this fast forwards then, you know, I ended up selling computers for a while. I dropped out of uni. It didn't really suit me the first couple of times around. The third time lucky though. And so I went back and I, you know, did a bachelor's and a PhD in physics. And that was on, you know, scary Einstein stuff. Not a lot of work after that. <laughs> in that um, mm. so I ended up I mean I'd, I'd heard about this thing called the internet one of the, the first paper I wrote was with a, a colleague um, we were filling in time after we'd finished our PhDs and it was called Electronic Resource Guide for Futurists for, sorry for physicists I'm jumping ahead of myself and this was you know we are looking at things like Telnet and FTP and all this sort of internet stuff and this new thing called World Wide Web so this is sort of 1994 this was happening the web had escaped from the lab at CERN. And we all knew about the web because you could tell net to the, the CERN, so the, the 
you know, the particle accelerator in Geneva, the, where the Large Hadron Collider is, where they collide large hadrons together. And so this thing called the, the World Wide Web was happening, and this, this, you know, this web browser thing. So I ended up working for a, a couple of years. I taught people how to use the internet at a registered training organization, and then I got hired from there to a startup that was using intranets. And this was in the days when this was still a mistake. You mean internet, right? Mm. No, no, intranet. <laughs> and then, so I did that for about a year. And then um, it was a big week. I, I got married on the Tuesday. My PhD was confirmed on the Thursday. I got fired the next week from that job, having delivered a program, a, a project. And so I'd met the Netscape people locally so I sort of I'll go and ask for a job. So, you know, I had an interview and they, you know, armed and armed for a while. And then I got interviewed on the, the 23rd of December, 1996, on the banks of Albert Park Lake during the end of year barbecue, hamburger in one hand, champagne in the other, Akubra sunglasses. Hmm. First day back after Christmas, 27th, we want to offer you a job. Are you interested? Yes. So I started on the, the 6th of January, 97, which was a Monday. And by Saturday, I was in San Francisco. Wow. Doing you know, the, the, there was a sales kickoff. So there was a mad year of that. Um, and it was, you know, Jim Clark, who was one of the founders, the founding chair, wrote a book called Netscape Time, which is a kind of an in-joke because everything runs very, very fast on Netscape Time. Mm. So when hundreds of us got fired at the beginning of 1998, you know, we got the inter the email from the CEO to all, we're re-engineering functions, which is dog but speak for adios tonto <laughs> and the horse you rode in on. <laughs> so, you know, congratulations, Joe, you've qualified for a portfolio of placement consulting services. So, hang on, you mean I'm fired? <laughs> well, we don't want to think of it like that. Mm. You know, that, that might be a bit too too risque to put in the podcast, but um, anyway. Mm. But as a result of that, you know, I had outplacement consulting, and of course, you know, you fill in all the forms, and you do the test, the metrics, and the, and the consultant sort of, you know, just going, well, you could do anything you want. What 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 interests you? What would you actually get out of bed to do? Mm. And I thought, that's it. The future. I want to be a futurist. Mm. His face must have fell because, you know, I don't know what that is, but I can teach you the network. And so this gets to the, the, the futures field, Bizo, which I, you know, I started to talk to people and said, you know, how do I become a futurist? And so I just spoke to you know, Max Dumais, who was the head of the De Bono Institute at the time, he said, oh, you should talk to Colin Benjamin. And he said, oh, you should talk to Richard Slaughter. Mm, okay. So then I rang Jen Lee Martin in the Futures Foundation in Sydney and spoke to her, and she said, oh, you should talk to Richard Slaughter. Then I spoke to Peter Elliard, who was very generous with his time, actually. Um, and he said, oh, you know, we need more academically oriented futurists to build the field, so you should talk to Richard Slaughter. Mm. Now, you know from the course, you know, mm. it's the rule of three. <laughs> True, so times. it's like all, yeah. all roads are leading to Richard Slaughter. So I thought, okay. So I looked him up on the net, you know, mm. um, and um, he had a local number. He lived in Kew. So I rang him up one day. I mean, I didn't realise you can't do this, but mm. I rang up and said, hello, I hear you're a futurist. I want to be one. What do I do? And he paused for a bit and said, we should meet for coffee. So we met at a local coffee shop and, you know, we're talking about the future and uh, met him a few more times and, you know, bought the knowledge base of future studies, the three-volume doorstop mm. set, and then a couple more books, mm. and he said, read those. And then eventually, he was setting up the Foresight Institute then, because there weren't any courses at the time, which I, I said, I'd like to do a course. He said, no, there, there aren't any. But 
this was sort of 1998 and then 99 he was starting to set up the Foresight Institute and he'd been editing a, the Australian Business Network report. So that was winding down and so he set up the Institute and then at the beginning of 2000 he contacted me and said, you know, oh, actually no, we, we, my first paid gig was in 99. Richard had got me in on a project, a scenarios project for a, a, a large Australian paper manufacturing organisation, which is where I met Hart and Tibbs. And so it's coming up to 20 years since I've been paid for these crazy <laughs> ideas. And so, so at the beginning of 2000, Richard said, look, there's uh, some work going here at the AFI. Mm. Uh, are you interested? Yes. Because uh, I was running my own consulting company by this stage. And so, you know, taking whatever I could and ended up going in and, you know, meeting Richard again and, and Nick Marsh was there at the time and, and went for a couple of months. And during that time, and you had Marie on, Marie was running the Foresight and Planning Unit at Swinburne by that stage. Marie Conway. Marie Conway, yep. And, you know, they'd done this this little sort of scenarios, um, test scenarios project. And so I helped out on that. And then I heard that there was a job going as a Foresight analyst in the uni. And I said, you know, if I applied for it, would I, would I make the shortlist? And she's gone, yeah. So, and universities are slow, so... Eventually, I, I lobbed in August 2000 as a foresight analyst in foresight and planning unit at Swinburne while Richard was setting up the AFI. And then in 2001, the first course started mm. and he invited me along. He said, well, you're doing this. Mm. So come along, sit in on the course. And so that's how it came to be that mm. Peter and I were there on day one of the, of the new MSF. Mm, okay. And I was there on day the last of the mm. MSF. Yeah, you know, yeah. So 18 years of it. So that's that's how I got into it. Um, and it's just been, you know, I still marvel at, at the, the series of events that led to that. Yeah, um, yeah. And to have ended up, you know, teaching the longest into this program. Yeah. It was just, that was purely by accident. That's, that's trust emergence. Yeah. That one. Joe, was there a particular tool or is there a particular tool that you use or is one of your favourites in helping people explore future? Uh, well, yeah, when I started, um, you know, I remember Marie and I sort of sat down one day in the in sort of the office and, and eek, what are we going to do now? Um, and so we'd started madly reading Andy Hines stuff from Foresight because he had a, com- a, a column called Hindsight which was the end of Foresight. So. Mm. And we were sort of devouring all of that. And, and um, there were a couple of papers. I think Avril Horton had a paper on a guide to successful foresight. And I thought, ooh, ooh, ooh. You know, so I was trying to collect together all this stuff. Mm. And Richard had written a paper on various methods as well. Um, and so towards the end of 2000, probably about, I don't know, September, maybe October, that sort of time frame, um, Marie said, look, I'm going to the OECD for a conference on futures or something like that we really should have some sort of framework to do foresight with you know think about that so of course in a blind panic I've sort of grabbed all this stuff and what came out of it was the generic foresight process mm. which was the the strategic thinking ideas from Mintzberg that says strategic thinking is different from strategic planning mm. um Avril Horton had spoken about different phases of foresight. You know, there are inputs and there's, you know, translation and, and she had various terms and then outputs. 
But Richard had these four methods, input methods, analytic methods, paradigmatic methods, and iterative and exploratory methods. Mm. And I wanted to sort of firstly make the language a bit more accessible because it was it's a very precise academic language, but mm. if we're going to use this for, for talking to people, then it better be, you know, a bit more user-friendly. And out of the, that mix, you know, there was a two-week period where at the end of it, there was the GFP, you know, inputs, analytic methods, interpretive methods, which is what I called the paradigmatic stuff, and prospection. I had to mm. dream up a term that would fit into the box on the mm. PowerPoint slide that mm. meant the activity of thinking about the future. Mm. And so that's where that term was sort of cooked up um, at that time. I later found out that, that Dan Gilbert at Harvard also uses the term. Mm. The funny thing was that when I used it at Swinburne in, in um, workshops, people thought I was nuts because that's a sign of madness when you make up new words. But mm. when Dan Gilbert dreams it up, oh, that's that's genius. Different. Yeah, so, <laughs> so the GFP um, sort of emerged from that. And that, as you recall, there's the inputs, then they've got the blue foresight box with analysis, interpretation, perspective, then there's the outputs, and then there's the, the other box that feeds into strategy and policy and social analysis. Mm. In those days, it was strictly about strategy for the university. Mm. So, I mean, that was that was cooked up really as a way to understand how to do foresight. Because, mm -hmm. you know, we knew about there were, there were scenarios and, and, and Richard's work sort of laying out how different methods are good for different parts of foresight was actually very valuable. And so you know, the phased idea, the separation of strategic thinking, which is opening up the thinking, mm. to strategic planning, which is you made the decision, we're going there, now how do you get there? And mm. so that was important to separate that out. Because a lot of people said, well, that's just strategic planning, isn't it? And we said, no, no, this, mm. is, this is different. This is the opening mm. up the thinking side of stuff. Mm. Um, and so, you know, and over time, the, the GFP sort of evolved into a... a uh, well, I suppose it was always always there in my mind. It's a, it's a template. We work out what's the purpose of the foresight engagement you're going to do. Mm. You know, um, you know, is it exploration? Is it decisions? Is you're going to commit twenty billion dollars to some capital thing, or you want to just explore a particular mm. topic area? So that's you know, get the purpose clear. Then that sets the context. Mm. And so you know, how wide are you going? Are you talking about markets, industries, societies, regions, planet? because mm. you know, it's meant to be a sort of a scalable model or framework. Um, and then you choose the method. You choose the process based on the purpose and the context. So if you're going to be running workshops in an organisation, mm. then you use workshop-based input methods mm. and, you know, maybe quick little, you know, two-by-two two scenarios as, mm. a, as a bit of fun. Mm. But if you're going to do a long project, then you have different input methods. Mm -hmm. Then the perspective step is, well, you know, what are you going to produce? Mm. Visions or scenarios or backcasts or, or what have you. And what, what sort of outputs are you going to have? You're going to mm. have a book that nobody reads or you're going to have like a, a full immersion experience to kind of, you know, get people to grok the future, which is what Kristen Orford's doing now over in Museum of Design in, at UniSA. I mean, you know, one of our... Mm. One of our wonderful graduates. Mm. Uh, and so the the idea of, of how do you then present the future to people? And mm. in recent years, uh, more and more people have sort of playing with the, the edges of art and in installations and, and sort of getting that out. But mm. when I first heard about the idea of the full immersion stuff from Peter, I think there was a accounting company that 
got its best and brightest to go and think about the future and they were going to do this boring presentation with PowerPoint slides. <laughs> and then just as we're about to start, yeah. all these kids invaded the boardroom and kidnapped the adults and took them away to an installation where they were going to see the future. So the idea that, that the you know, you should start with the outputs in mind to work out mm. maximum impact. Mm. So over time, it's become a sort of a template for working out what you're going to do. So you've got the process, then you generate the content, mm. then you work out how to transmit that. Mm. You know, um, so it's both a template for designing, but also for diagnosing. I mean, the, the original mm. GFP paper, which is 2003 now, um, really tried to work out why do foresight things not work. Mm. Mm. And having having cooked it up, and then inside the interpretation step, of course, there's all the different layers. And so CLA that, that Sahail dreamt up and yeah. macro history all yeah. sort of fits into there. And um, so it kind of... It took a few years to, to come together, but I remember in, in Josh's podcast, he, he talked about, I remember when Joe was working out the generic layers, thinking, <laughs> bloody hell, that's good, because I, I can't really remember. <laughs> but, yeah. but there was this, this period of, of trying to codify this and, and really sort of set it up so that it was like a complete framework so that you could pick and choose the appropriate frameworks of understanding in the, inter in the interpretation step that suited the, the purpose and context. Because, mm. mm. you know, otherwise, you know, if you only know scenarios and you can't really adapt it, mm. then you're going to end up with the same thing over and over again. And that's not particularly wise. Mm. So the idea was to craft, you know, an, an, an instance of the iteration of the GFP mm. suited to the purpose, the context, mm. You create the method and you generate the content and then you transmit mm. it. And so it, it's meant to be a way to think that through so that you're not locked into mm. making methodological choices by default. Mm. Um, you know, they're by design, not by default. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it, it's awfully hard to come out of that because that was the framework that I wish that I'd had when I started. Yeah. And it's the one that I've ended up with and, and yeah. that, that I use for thinking about or foresight engagements. Yeah, well, I was going to say it's almost a foundational um, piece to thinking about foresight in general. And I know that's been there's been lots of international recognition and international referencing of this of your framework. So, um, yeah, so that's really really amazing. But that's just because it's generic. I mean, yeah. You know, um, and yeah. and that, again, that's that's the point. But I mean, you know, you've got Peter Bishop and Andy Hines have have come up with their their framework foresight, which is it elaborates the, the context part a bit more. I mean, mm. the GFP was developed with Swinburne in mind mm. um, and then taken out, but they've approached it from, or certainly Andy, from the point of view of consulting, mm. which is you arrive at each new engagement cold. Yes. So you've got to think more carefully about the purpose and the context. Mm. So, and you look around, I mean, you know, Sahel's got um, approaches as well, and they, they, they all follow a, a similar kind of logic, which mm. is work out what you're going to do, gather the stuff, make sense of it, go for some depth, go for some breadth and figure out how to transmit it. Yeah. You know, and yeah. so um, that's why it's not necessary for people to use the GFP, just use some sort of framework Yeah. and make sure that it's one that allows you to pick and choose the appropriate yeah. methods at the particular steps. Because as, as you know from the course, yeah, any method can be a foresight method mm. provided it's part of a foresight process. Mm. And mm. that was, that was the, the key insight of the GFP. Once you've got a process framework, then you can choose whatever methods work yep. for the audience, for you, for whoever.
Joe, what what sort of future do you see coming up for humanity in general? So, um, what do you see in say thirty years' time? Where do you see us? Mm, that's one of those questions, isn't it? Well, in the intro, of course, you mentioned that I use big history, and so um, I got involved in big history in a big way about thirteen years ago. I was writing a paper on um, analysing or nesting social perspectives, and then there was the thing that went out to macro perspectives beyond the world system. And that was the scary alien lecture that mm. first ran. Many rumours. The first ran, you know, back in two thousand and three as a kind of as a kind of bit of fun. That was the same year that we first ran the Sarkar game too. Peter said, oh, I've got an idea for a game. Good idea. Um, but what, what emerged from that, because I thought this was macro history, and then I started hearing about this you know, big history, and it's, well, this is what, as a physicist, uh, this was what we always called cosmic evolution, the idea that the universe goes from matter to biology to mind mm. and technology in our case. So if you're looking at the future of human civilization in the interpretation step, then you need a framework that is commensurate with that. And so big history emerges as the obvious um, choice because it's focused around uh, energy flows through systems, energy flows through matter. Now, of course, the basic premise is that you don't have a civilization if you don't have energy. And so the rise of humanity through you know, the last 300 or so thousand years that we've been able to identify a distinct species that's us and the precursors have been extracting more energy and resources from the environment. And so as we've got better at doing that, we've become a planet-altering species. So we now find ourselves, you know, and David Christian talks about, you know, the, in, in Big History, talks about eight thresholds of complexity, you know, the formation of the universe and stars and chemical elements. And threshold seven is agriculture, where we invented this new way of not just finding food, but deliberately... Um, you know, farming it. Uh, and to some degree, we backed ourselves into that corner because human beings walked the ends of the earth literally until we found that there's nowhere else to go. They call that extensification. You extend the range without increasing the density. And then, you know, gradually, you couldn't walk, walk any further in South America. You suddenly end up put, you know, mm. the southern tip of South America. And, and you know, so people realised they couldn't, keep going they had to settle down where they were and that was intensification that was the transition agriculture and it's from then that for the first 5,000 years there's villages and about 5,000 years ago civilizations start this is entrenched you know state systems of power and coercion and what have you and that chuggles along for pretty much four and a half thousand years or more until fossil fuels show up and that was a real energy grab because in those days before fossil fuels, you basically had human beings and animals and wind and a bit of solar and, you know, what have you, wind and water. Not really solar yet. Um, when fossil fuels show up, then it's a quantum jump. And so, the, you know, the last two or three hundred years, there's just been this this spike in terms of everything. You know, if you at the Anthropocene Conference a few years ago at Big History Institute, the, the talk was about hockey sticks. All the graphs start off flattening. You're a dunk at the right, mm. you know, shooting off the scale. And that finds us, you know, now we've bumped up against the limits of the biosphere. And so we're now in what some people are calling the Anthropocene, although, you know, it's not official yet, but it's, you know, colloquially, everyone knows what you're on about when you talk about the Anthropocene. Um, so big history, 
as, as sort of tracking the way that human beings have increased their, their harvesting of energy and resources from the environment is a way of, of tracking that. And so that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves after sort of post-threshold eight, wondering what threshold nine will be like. And so that's what I've been been working on the last you know, eight years or even more now, um, is how do you scope out what threshold nine is? So, And I define it by analogy with if threshold eight was the transition to fossil fuels, then threshold nine is a transition away from fossil fuels. Mm. Now, data's four archetypes tell you that, you know, is it going to keep going? Probably not. Mm. We can't we can't burn this stuff without cooking ourselves, so that's going to go away. But then you've got the options of collapse or descent, a mm-hmm. slower form of collapse, constraint or transformation. And so um, around about 2013, I think I wrote a paper called Profiling Threshold 9, or it was a book chapter actually, where I tried to, to work this out and, and think about it. And, you know, I was presenting at a conference in a a well-known, I won't say his name, um, aeronautical entrepreneur got up and started yelling at me in the session, saying, what, you know... And he, he, he literally said, because I, I claim that there are limits, in one sentence went from, if you say there are limits to what people can do, then you're saying there's not enough for people, not enough to go around people, for people, so therefore you have to exclude some people, you've got to get rid of them, you're going to kill them, it makes you a Nazi. So Metcalfe's law, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or maybe it's not Metcalfe's law, but it's, it's somebody's law, you know, in one sentence, I'd gone from saying there may well be some limits imposed on what we can do to being a Nazi. Mm-hmm. And this appears to be a common um, view that, that the limits to growth was vilified and ridiculed, but, you know, it turns out it was deliberately misrepresented. So for me, unless there is a miracle, we're, we're not going to have the endless energy reserves. Mm. Uh, and the paper argues this. I mean, I'd, I'd love it to be true. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, I'd... I'd I'd love it to be true, but but we're literally, as Richard Heinberg puts it, searching for a miracle, you know, for another Tatslotto win, because mm. we hit the the energy jackpot with with fossil fuels, and so we're waiting for another one. And so people who are just expecting this to happen, I mean, I always liken this to, it's like your retirement plan is, well, I'll just win the lotto when I run out of money, mm. <laughs> you know. I mean, lovely if you could count on that, but I reckon we should have a plan B, just in case. And so in the absence of that, some sort of miraculous new energy source or, or some technological advance that lets us get, you know, to, to concentrate the diffuse sources of renewable energy, um, we're going to have to face this sort of declining envelope, you know. And, and David Holmgren has, has written about this and he's, you know, got the classic four um, scenarios, the, the archetypes that, that Jim Data talks about. Um, it's probably going to be a descent. Mm. And so, you know, I mean, I know Josh and Richard both worked on a special issue of, of Foresight on descent futures. And as Josh put it, descent futures can still be decent futures, provided we think it through carefully and, and adjust our expectations. But mm. it's the, the mindless non-thinking about it that, that I find frustrating. So so that's part of the, the, the energy envelope is probably going to decline unless there's some miracle and you know I've got my fingers crossed all of them you know hoping for a miracle but you know um so that's sort of the energy basis of the of the civilization global civilization goes down but then you know what what lessons from macro history can you draw and Mike McCallum spoke um about you know cuz he he's he does macro history and so you know 
um, Mendy knows because you interviewed him. Um, there is, you know, what what sort of what sort of lessons or insights can be drawn from mm-hmm. from macro history? Um, you know, failures of foresight. This is one of those maxims. Failures of foresight are usually failures of either imagination or insight. Mm-hmm. So not thinking broadly enough mm-hmm. or deeply enough. So hence the futures cone to open it out with the preposterous futures at the end, and the 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 generalized layered methods that take you all the way down, you know, through macro history, through big history, through astrobiology and search for extraterrestrial intelligence and cosmic evolution and as far as you can go, we think, at the moment, unless there are other universes, but evidence base is pretty thin there. Um, so if you broaden and deepen, what insights can you learn from, from macro history? Not in a predictive sense, but from the point of view of what insights. And so the obvious one to choose here is is Arnold Toynbee and you know, the rise and decline of civilizations. As he, he puts it, you know, the decline phase, when that starts to sit in, the creative minorities who are the elites of the society stop being creative. Mm. They don't come up with solutions to the problems being faced or the challenges being faced, challenge and response, that the, the broader populace um, will buy into. And so Tommy calls them the proletariat, which is a terrible word, but um, essentially the members of the, the, in, the members of the society and the, mem- and the people outside the civilization. So the interior, the internal proletariat, and the exterior, external proletariat. But if if they stop believing what the elites are doing, they could be political elites or military elites, or in in our civilization now the technical elites. You know, look at Silicon Valley. You know, when I was there. It's like mm. we we thought you we were changing the world for the better. Mm. Now I think about Schrodinger's. Um, quote about quantum mechanics I don't like it and I'm sorry I had anything to do with it mm. I'm not quite at that point of repenting but you know I remember when the internet didn't suck mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know still I can just barely remember it but you know that's why I've sort of suspended my Twitter account now because I don't like being tracked but that that feeds into the next part which is as the energy declines then what are you going to do to make money and so the, the elites at the moment, the political elites, well, no one believes them anymore. That's, there's just no respect for them. And so you've got the Occupy movement and, and you know, politics is basically a circus now with a revolving door of, of leaders that, you know, who managed to dodge the knife this week is, is who the leader is. And so as the, as the members of the society withdraw the, um, the legitimacy that they give the, the elites, the, the creative minority, they get worried because mm. you know, what are they going to do? So they become a dominating minority, and so they start to impose totalitarianism. Mm. Um, now, you know, so you end up with basically a, a surveillance state. And I say, well, ooh, look around. <laughs> what do you see? Mm. So you have basically a surveillance state, um, and because energy is harder to come by, and you've heard the saying, data is the new oil, so you've basically got, our data being harvested from us against our will and knowledge, usually. And you know, by the time this goes to goes live, there'll probably be some new scandal involving Facebook or Google or mm. or you know Amazon or whoever. Mm. Um, so our data is being extracted from us and being repurposed and sold. Jaron Lanier, who's a um, was an internet pioneer, he was one of the co-inventors of virtual reality. He's got a TED talk uh, a few months back. Uh, he talks about um, the the big tech companies have become 
basically empires. He calls it behaviors, behavior of users modified and made into an empire for rent, which is bummer. <laughs> and he talks about, you know, the bummer approach to data. And that's why you should delete all your social media accounts and, you know, you know go back to using it properly. Uh, it's hard to do that because, you know, the tech companies are, are so entrenched. And so you've got basically surveillance culture that's come into play with political elites wanting to make sure that no one does anything, no mm. one dissents. You've got the, the technical elites now, um, and, you know, the Frightful Five, as they're called. This is basically Amazon, uh, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and Apple, although Apple are the least worst in this. There's a journalist in America named Kashmir Hill, and she's done the experiment. She hooked up her house, and it spied on her, and she did the experiment to see what that was doing, and she's just done getting rid of the five tech giants, one per week, and then all of them in the sixth week. Mm. I was just listening to a podcast coming here today, actually, where she's talking about her experience. Mm. And people say, if you don't like it, just don't use them. You can't. Mm. You can't not use them. Mm. So this means that on the downward slope, as, as you get from, from the breakdown of legitimacy of the elites, you then slide into disintegration, where the elites start to become controlling, dominating. They try to set up a universal state that controls everything. And the same with the, the surveillance capitalists, mm. as um, Shoshana Zuboff calls it. She's a professor emerita from Harvard. She's just got a new book out, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. It talks about how this happened, mm. basically invented by Google, mm. when their business model evaporated during the dot combustion back in 2001, mm. roughly at the same time as the Twin Towers came down. So you had surveillance capitalism invented at the same time as the surveillance state was happening with overlapping agendas, and, of course, we know from Edward Snowden that the NSA has been camping on the back of the tech giants for better part of a decade or more. So the, the future I see coming is declining access to energy, increasingly controlling political elites, increasingly extractive technological elites. Mm -hmm. Now, Toynbee says it doesn't necessarily lead to dissolution. The source of hope here is some new philosophy. He calls it a universal church, but there's doesn't necessarily have to be a religion. There's some sort of new philosophy of, of being or some new ideology that, that sort of tries to transcend that. Um, and that might be minimalism. That might be, you know, the minimalists uh, got a very big podcast in the US, you know, live, live better with less. You've got digital minimalism now. Cal Newport, very famously, has just got a new book out um, on digital minimalism, doing less of your digital life. You've got a whole lot of people. There's, there's starting to be this upsurge of revolt mm. against the, the extractivist, you know, surveillance capitalists. Mm. So I think that'll be playing out over the next, you know, decade or so. And we'll see whether the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe, gets taken further. Mm. But essentially, to, to cut a long story short, the um, as the energy envelope declines and the limits to growth, people pointed this out, you know, 40, nearly 50 years ago. And Graham Turner did some work at um, CSIRO and then at Melbourne Sustainable Societies Institute, which is just across the road here, actually, at Melbourne Uni, where he tracked the data. So, you know, you've seen the the, um, the slide pack for this, which shows that that they, they had 70 years of historical data. They matched the model to that. Then they ran it forward. The basic assumption is we don't do anything differently, business as usual, and it goes, and all starts to go belly up, around about 
the end of the second, beginning of the third decade of the 21st century, right about where we are now. <laughs> um, and so, and it's imperceptible to begin with, but everything goes down and, and the data is tracking it. I mean, you know, it, it's bang on. So the, um, the, the huge industry of, you know, hanging it on the, the limits to growth people for being idiots is, you know, those critics are silent now because the data is showing that they were right. So as we, as we continue on the downslope, declining access to energy and, and services going to hell and, and no clear way of replacing air energy use, then the political elites are going to get more strident. The surveillance capitalists are going to get more pervasive. Um, and so, you know, the, these two things will overlap and it really depends on, on whether we can combat that. Um, you know, totalitarian states have fallen in the past. We, we've now got a pervasive surveillance culture that, that people just don't think about. And they say, well, I don't do anything wrong. I've got nothing to hide. And that's such a, I'm about to swear then, that's such a <laughs> stupid thing to say because it's not true. And Glenn Greenwald, who was the journalist that Edward Snowden leaked to, has a TED talk about this. This, this is this is the most stupid thing you can possibly say because it's not true. Mm. And he famously says, if that's the case, give me all your passwords for your email so I can trawl through it at will mm. and find whatever I want and publish whatever I think is, is fun. He said, no one's ever taken me up on that. Mm. So it's not true that we don't have things to hide. It's And it's not about hiding. It's about privacy. Privacy is a human right. But what's happened is the narrative has been changed from a right to privacy to you must have something to hide. Mm. And that's the subtle shift. Mm. So I I think they'll, you know, that you can find evidence of this, you know, in, in emerging issues analysis. You look at the artists and the mystics and the people on the very edge of society. There's a whole bunch of technologists who believe, as I did, and maybe still do, and, you know, if I work hard at it, that, that the internet is a force for good. Mm -hmm. And it's possible to decolonize it from from those who've colonized it mm -hmm. and free stuff or open source stuff that we, you know, signal, for example, that, that we use mm. in our communications for, mm. for future shift. And, you know, you, you, you've got to, Eric Schmidt, the, the former CEO of Google said, you've got to guard your privacy or you'll lose it, mm. you know? Um, so I think that's, that'll be playing out. And so there'll be some sort of ideology of, of doing more with less, you know, clever um, uses of technology, and you find this in pockets. You've got permaculture that David Holman does, you know, in, in Hepburn Springs. But you've also got people who are trying to take back the net. Gerald Lanier is one. Um, Cal Newport is another. And, and so gradually, and, and you know, Kashmir Hill, who's, who's shown that just how hard it is to extricate yourself. Mm. So it'll be less convenient. But, um, you know, Zuboff says that in the same way that we now lament all the things that we lost as a result of rapacious industrial capitalism, what future regrets will we have around allowing surveillance capitalism? Because we're not just going to lose the earth, we're going to lose our nature. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not, you know, earth nature that is being eroded, but our own nature. Mm -hmm. And so um, this, is, this is almost Star Wars, you know, rebellion kind of stuff going on against essentially a totalitarian state. And I've lived in a totalitarian state, you know, growing up as a child. You know, my parents were refugees from, from occupied Hungary. My mother crawled through a minefield in 1950 to escape. My father escaped after the revolution in Budapest in 56. They met here. 
And while my mother was at the, the water polo watching the Hungarian team defeat the Russians in the famous Melbourne bloodbath, a Russian player punched one of the Hungarian players and he had blood streaming from his face, dragged from the pool. Literally, there was blood in the water. Mm. Uh, the Russians had to be escorted from the, um, the pool then, or Soviets, I should say, well, had to be escorted from the pool. They were down 4-0 or something like that. They weren't going to win. At the same time as my mother was there, my father was in Budapest on the streets. Um, and when somebody close to him was shot by a sniper, he decided that, you know, it's unhealthy to be here. Mm. So as a child, I lived in Hungary for, you know, on several occasions for several months, learning, you know, what it's like. You don't know when they're watching you. And so your behavior subtly changes. And so we have to fight that because, you know, the worst excesses of 1984, go back and read that and see just how prescient um, George Orwell, or pen name George Orwell was, about that. There's a famous meme on the net that shows, you know, you know those blue circles that George Orwell lived here and, <laughs> it's, it's, and it's got a surveillance camera in front of it. So it's, it's kind of that. Yeah. But that's where we find ourselves mm. because we're on the downslope of, of global civilization with a access to resources declining mm. and political elites and, and technological elites and engineering and, and military elites getting more controlling. And so we have to resist that. Mm -hmm. And it's got to be a passive resistance. You know, I'm not saying don't let law enforcement do their job, but there's no reason for the NSA to be spying on the European Parliament to be looking for terrorists. Mm. Mika Hupinen, who's a famous um, privacy or actually security researcher, but said, you know, it's wrong and it's rude. Mm. You don't do that to friends. Mm. And so I think we need to take back our privacy mm. because inch by inch by inch, it's been eroded until it's almost impossible to do so. Mm -hmm. And that's difficult, but I think it's absolutely necessary mm -hmm. on the downslope. How do you describe foresight to someone who's never heard of it before? Well, that, that's the question that we spend a lot of time in the classroom thinking about, isn't it? Because you come in and you have the intensive and then you're, oh, how the hell am I going to explain this to somebody who's not here? I think back to the time, some of the very early slides I used to use way back at the beginning, back in sort of 2000, 2001, 2002, when we, we used to run the foresight um, processes for the university, like if I think back to then, um, I used to explain it in terms of crossing the road. Because um, in the old days, before there was the main coffee shop on campus, there was the one across the road, the Universal Cafe. And so I used to explain to people that I was doing foresight workshops with, you know, imagine you want to go to the coffee shop. So, you know, you're, you're, that's your goal over there. You want to get there. And so you gather your input. So you look around and you say, ah, there's traffic. So I was trying to explain it in terms of you know, it's it's the same process that you used across the road to do foresight, except that it's much more structured. So you look around, you see, oh, there's there's cars, and you, you start to worry about, oh, okay. So you do some analysis, and you work out that every 4.3 seconds, there's a 2.1 second gap or whatever it is, you know. And, and so, so then I joke and say, so on the basis of that, that analysis, you're quite happy to close your eyes, cover your ears, and just walk straight across in the gap. And people go, ooh, I said, no. So we realize that the trend analysis is not the best way of doing foresight. 
And so then you start to work out what's a bit more deeply. You know, what's what's really happening here? The interpretation step. What's really happening? Not what seems to be happening, but what's really happening. And you notice that there are these coloured lights, and you know the flow of traffic seems to be um, correlated with the colours of these lights. And so you work out the deeper system structure, and understanding the deeper system structure gives you a sense of ah, oh, maybe I can draw some insights from working out what's going on. And so when the, those lights are red, there tends to be a bigger gap. So so then you do your scenarios and you work out okay, when well, that goes like that, but you need to also be aware of wild cards because of course. There are side streets and, and, you know, red cars tend to ignore the traffic lights. So do taxis. So, and there might be a, you know, there might be a meteorite that lands. And so, but eventually you work out, you know, that's, that's the scenarios. That's, that's where I'm going now. I choose my direction. That's it. That's my strategic intent. And I go. And so, you know, and people kind of got the idea that this is a sort of, and, and of course you keep scanning. And having made the decision, don't you say, oh, jolly good, I don't have to worry about it anymore because, you know, there are the red cars that ignore the lights, you know. So um, I tried to tried to explain it in terms of it's, it's a process by which you, you scan the environment, you try to work out what's going on, get some deeper insight into the dynamics of change. You look at the, the plausible possibilities and maybe even the preposterous preposterabilities of, you know, do I have to worry about an asteroid landing? Yeah, probably not. Um, but, you know, a car coming out of the side street that's on this side of the light, maybe I do need to worry about that. And so I need to be aware of, of sort of wild card actions, low probability, but high impact events, and to be aware of those. And so to me, it's like crossing the street or, or you know, a shopping list. Um, we do foresight naturally as individuals, unless there's some sort of, you know, organic problem in the brain. Um, and so the, the question is, how do you take that from an implicit unconscious process taking place in your single mind, and this was on the slides that we had in those days, to a conscious explicit process taking place in many minds, from individual to collective and from unconscious to conscious. Mm -hmm. And that's really the trick. And so you need some sort of framework, voila, here's mm. one I prepared earlier, mm. we're going to use this. Mm. Um, now the wildcard story, of course, is comes back to the, the famous September the 11th story that, that's in the generic foresight process paper that Marie Conway and I were running a, a process for the library group on the 10th and the 11th of September 2001 and on the 10th which was the Monday we ran through we got them to do little toy scenarios from you know gathering ideas and and they um they came up with some some scenario names one of the ones I remember is information Delhi that's d-e-h-l-i because they were going to offshore all the information stuff to India, because you have you know a highly educated population, they speak English, and you know there's decent infrastructure. So that that was the end of the first day. And so for day two, the eleventh of September, our time in the morning, we were going to get them to draw a wild card to see what that did to their um, their scenario. Now I can distinctly remember this. I actually found this uh, some years later. We had you know. John Peterson's got a book called Out of the Blue about 80 wild cards and we clicked together about 100 wild cards and we sat down and, and we actually had terrorist attack on a major US city or cities and we looked and said nah that's so implausible it would just annoy people and so we took it out of the deck on the 11th of September 2001 mm. and so that that wasn't in play mm. of course and it all happened that night our time uh, and the, the slides introducing the wildcard said, you know, suddenly the world changes, dot, dot, dot. 
And, you know, Marie and I have, have often thought, you know, if, if we left it in and someone had pulled it on that day, mm. that would just be folklore. Mm. But the lesson was every card stays in the deck because you don't get to choose what's plausible or not. The universe doesn't care what you think is plausible. Mm. You know, and that's, I think Stuart Brand says that about doing futures as well. If you want your f scenarios to be believed, they have to be plausible. But the universe doesn't care. Mm. That's why you, plausible is not enough. You've got to have possible and preposterous, mm -hmm. really, to open up your thinking. The more mm -hmm. preposterous, the better. You mm -hmm. know? And that's data second law. Mm -hmm. That's why I put the preposterous futures category in there mm. for data second law, that any useful idea about the future should appear ridiculous. Mm -hmm. you know, and, that's, and Arthur C. Clarke also said, the way you find out the limits of the possible is by moving beyond them into the impossible. Mm -hmm. So I, I call that the, the Clark data boundary, mm. if you will, or the discontinuity. Mm. And people find it hard to shift. Mm. But to me, they're the most interesting futures because they're, the they're the ones that, that really open up your thinking. And mm. Remember, it's failures of imagination, not broad enough, or insight, not deep enough. Mm. Um, so I think foresight is a way of taking what we do naturally and to make sure that we're not blindsided by things we couldn't imagine mm -hmm. and thumped by things we should have figured out mm. um, you know, through deeper insight. Joe, could you tell us more about big history and your connection with, with that? Okay, well, the big history is... Um, we mentioned earlier um, in, in the, the podcast, um, big history is this sort of way of understanding. Basically, it's the, the term was coined by David Christian, who's a professor of history at Macquarie University. Um, he began teaching, uh, he wanted to teach world history back in about 1989. And he kept asking people, you know, where does history start? And they said, oh, it starts 5,000 years ago, because you know, that's when writing was invented. You know, but, but there were people before that. There were societies before that. So well, maybe it starts with with agricultural soil, but there were people before that in the Paleolithic. And then he fairly soon came up against the idea that before people, there were animals, before animals, there were microbes, before microbes, there was the earth. And before the earth, there was, you know, the formation of the earth. And so eventually realized that you've got to go back to the beginning of time at the Big Bang. So big history is literally history from the Big Bang to global civilization. Now, of course, I studied that or I read that stuff, Carl Sagan, did his Cosmos series. It's actually because of the Cosmos series that I went back to university because mm. um, I dropped out and, you know, they said, clearly you're not cut out for this because, you know, your, your marks are terrible. So, but I got interested in science once again. Carl Sagan ignited my interest and so, you know, I can I can draw a direct line from between sitting here today and watching mm. Carl Sagan do Cosmos. And he talked about cosmic evolution. These are some of the things that hydrogen atoms do given 15 billion years of cosmic evolution. you know. So in my big history classes to, the, to my undergrads, I talk about we go from, from quarks to consciousness or from hydrogen to humanity. Right? That's the story that we, we talk about. So David Christian coined this term as a joke, but it's caught on. So fast forward to about 2008, he was at Macquarie and you know, he spent a few years in America and he recorded a series of lectures, The Teaching Company. And Bill Gates likes to get teaching company um, lectures. So, you know, was, Gates was there you know, exercising one day and he, oh, wow. And so as David tells the story, he got rung up one morning by 
one of Bill Gates' assistants. You know, Mr. Bill Gates would like to talk to you about big history. And he didn't believe it. He thought, you know, the student's having a lend of me. But no, no, the, the next time he's in San Diego, you know, the car will come. And so he goes in and he, he meets Bill Gates, who says, I love big history. It's my favorite course ever. I wish I'd had this when I was at school. Would you work with me to bring this to high school kids to be made available for free through the internet? You know, bighistoryproject.com. And David said, yes, in a, in a picosecond, as he, as he puts it. <laughs> um, so, so that's gained some currency. Now, I had the great good fortune of, of meeting David um, in 2012 in person for the first time. We'd, we'd be corresponding for a little while at a conference in Moscow, the Global Future 2045 conference. And then soon after that, he invited me to stay with him in Sydney. And you know, we talked long into the night over glasses of wine. And the following day, we, we came back to Melbourne to go to one of the pilot schools, which was Nossel High School in, in Berwick, where they were trialling big history. Because Gates said, I've got some experience in how you do this stuff, David. He said, what you do is you get some pilots' schools in, demonstrate it. You don't ask for permission from the regulators. You demonstrate how good it is. And then they come in afterwards. And that's, that's how it's worked. So it's in well over a 1,000 schools worldwide, probably 2,000 by now since I, I last spoke to my colleagues at Big History Institute at Macquarie. So for me, that was kind of the logical place. And so I, I corresponded with several of the Big History folks. I met most of the board at the Moscow conference. Um, and I used to go back to Craig Benjamin, who is, I think he's the current vice president now, go back to his room. It was, you know, having a drink and I met John Smart actually the the, the singularity futurist because he was speaking as well Ray Kurzweil was the headline act he got an hour we got 20 minutes so was, this was this was going out live webcast and I can remember I was I did my spiel and my phone pinged as I was walking back to my seat and it was my wife saying good job that was very <laughs> strange to to have it there yeah. um so I joined the board um was was ratified at the the first meeting, the first conference in 2012, um, and spent five years on the till I, I rotated off the board. And you know, in in introducing big history with the the very generous support of David Christian, Craig Benjamin, and the late Cynthia, Cynthia Stokes Brown, who was the third author of that book. And I've got and my 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 treasure copy of the, their textbook is signed by all three of them. Right, they all helped so much in helping to set up the course at Swinburne in 2015 for the undergrads. And I found, and in the, the recent um, papers I've been writing, the most recent one was just out in December, Big History as a Scaffold for Futures Education, I strongly believe, and Peter and I wrote about this when we were sort of writing the, the swan song mark one of the MSF back in 2016. We found that the best way to teach people about the future is to teach them about the entirety of the past. Because with the 14 or so billion year run-up, you can't just stop. You know, the students, they, they get, yeah. you know, um, going into the future. And, and David Christian himself says the first year he taught it, he said, right, we stop now. And they can, no, 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 no. What about the future? He said, no, historians don't talk about the future. Said, no, 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 no. And so there is a sense in which the, the big history perspective teaches you to see things through time. Mm -hmm. the, the, the scary social scientist language is diachronic, so through time. And that's what macrohistory is. It's a diachronic uh, view. So they learn this through the skin. They see billions of years, you know, hundreds of millions of years for, for climate change, tens of millions of years for for the formulation of or formation of petroleum or, or fossil fuels, you know, 
climate change comes and goes, extinctions come and go, you know, mm. and so they see all this. And so you, you lob now in the Anthropocene and it's a big history perspective. You know, the Anthropocene is where big history meets the big future. Mm -hmm. um, so I think big history, as, as strange as it sounds, is one of the best ways to teach foresight because it helps you to understand the main challenges that we face now by seeing how they've happened before. Mm -hmm. David Grinspoon, who's an astrobiologist in, in the US, um, he's also a jazz muso, which is an interesting by the by, but he spoke at the Anthropocene Conference a few years ago at, at, um, in, in Sydney. And you know, he talks about the, um, what they call the oxygen holocaust. When, when photosynthesis was invented by the microbes, they released oxygen. And of course, this poisoned most of the other species. So those irresponsible cyanobacteria releasing this waste gas poisoning the atmosphere. Sound familiar? <laughs> right? We're doing the same, except mm. we know that we're doing it and they didn't. And so there's lots of lessons to learn from big history. And as David Christian puts it, it's human history in its cosmic context. And so what I like to play with, of course, is what happens when you... And I, and I see big history as our example of intelligent civilizations. Mendy will be happy now because I'm talking about aliens at last. Right? So an and, and, you know, intelligent civilizations are part of life, which is astrobiology, which is the next sort mm. of superset, mm. which is part of cosmic evolution. And so I like to play with the idea of, well, we can use big history to think about the sort of the, the moderate to longer term future of our species, but come out a level... And let's imagine the really long-term future. So you know, it's one of my manias at the moment, of course, is the idea that, that the galaxy known as Hoag's objects, Hoag's object, H-O-A-G-S, principal galaxy catalogue number 54559, um, it looks for all the world like it's been engineered. And I reckon, you know, for, for a piddling cost, it'll be really good to have a closer look just in case. You know, and there's a, there's a number of empirical observations you can make to, to do that. But that's that's when I decide to do ultra-preposterous futures mm. you know, for fun, just to make sure my brain isn't ossifying. Um, so big history is the framework. I've just got another paper in in uh, under review at the moment, big history in its cosmic context, where I explain this idea of us as an example of an intelligent civilization, which is a particular form of life, which is, you know, Da, 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 going outwards and then of course there's the Wilbur material which is going inwards from big history and so Wilbur's model the scary Wilbur model the four quadrants with all the mm -hmm. that's actually a model of big history as well and so there's this sort of full circle that as a as an undergraduate you know all those years ago 30 or more years ago now 35 years ago eek, you know sort of cosmic evolution Carl Sagan cosmos all that sort of stuff was my my worldview then finding wilbur stuff in the mid 90s or early 90s and then then sex ecology and spirituality came out and that's a model of big history it's now sort of it, it all comes together as sort of this sort of master model of understanding both where we've come from and therefore kind of thinking about what the interiority, the interior consciousness of other intelligent beings might be like if they exist. Mm. Um, or they, they exist probably, very probably. I mean, if it can happen here, then it can happen anywhere. That's the, that's the nature of, of the processes of cosmic evolution. 
question is whether you know we make contact with them or whether they'll bother to contact us mm. you know the macro perspectives paper back in 2007 played with this idea of you know there's all these reasons why they might not contact us the zoo hypothesis you know we're a nature preserve um peter and i joke about sometimes you know that we're the control that for for budding um, deities if you really want to bugger things up you'll do what they did on earth so we're we're the control <laughs> that you then you know or maybe we're a special case and so there's a graduate student in you know the the alpha centauri academy of humanoid studies or what have you that's mm. sort of saying you know we're like a harvard business review case study you know mm. is this going to be a success a turnaround or a or a co- failure collapse mm. Mm. you know so i like to play with that because Half seriously, because, you know, if, you know, I think Arthur C. Clarke must have said this somewhere, I I can't remember exactly where, but something like what he would say, that if we are alone in the universe, this is a gobsmacking idea. Mm -hmm. And if we're not alone in the universe, this is a gobsmacking idea. The second one, because we need to give some account of ourselves, I think Carl Sagan said this, you know, what account would would we give of our stewardship of this planet to a dispassionate alien observer? And if we are alone, then it's up to us to make sure that intelligence doesn't get extinguished from this universe, either through through gross stupidity, like blowing ourselves up, or gross negligence, which is allowing a rock to smack into us when we could have done otherwise. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's how I use big history as a, as a teaching tool, but also because it, it literally deals with the history of everything. It allows you to imagine the future of the history of everything. Mm-hmm. And so as I, I like to joke... Um, sometimes I only teach two subjects, mm. big history, which is everything that's happened since the beginning of the universe <laughs> and future studies, which is what comes after that. <laughs> and I think that's probably a, a good way to sum up, yeah. you know, the, the, the way that I approach foresight embedded in the totality of everything. You know, I'm interested in absolutely everything, everywhere and every when mm. from the hot big bang to the big chili rip. Mm, mm. Um, thank you so much, Joe, for coming in and sharing all your knowledge with the with the listeners. It's been great to have My you. My pleasure. It's been great to fun. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Rebecca Mead saying goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.